Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Canadians face a triple viral threat. We recommend uh, using masks as a layer of protection. Respiratory viruses are hitting Canadians while COVID-19 continues to spread. Can our system handle the surge? Should masks make a comeback? And will crucial children's medication supplies catch up? We'll talk about all that with Canada's Deputy Public Health Doctor, Dr. Howard New. And we'll get an update on the provincial push for federal health money with Manitoba's Premier and the Chair of the Council of the Federation, Heather Stephenson. Then, Toronto wants COVID support... Again, we cannot tax our way out of this, what happened with COVID, and we can't cut our way out of it. Those will both do damage to the city. Mayor John Tory threatens major cuts or tax hikes if the provincial and federal governments don't step up with cash to cover the lingering costs of the pandemic. What's at stake in Canada's biggest city if it doesn't get the money? We'll ask Mayor Tory later in the show. Plus... Americans on the edge of their seats. Tuesday was a good day for America, a good day for democracy, and it was a strong night for Democrats. The balance of power in the United States remains too close to to call. We'll take you to D.C. with the latest. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. COVID is you know, peaking and may have plateaued and may be coming down in certain areas of the country. RSV had made an early start and is increasing and still at a high level. Influenza is just beginning and just accelerating. So there's a dynamic interplay with these viruses. And uh, we actually don't fully understand these dynamics when they are occurring together. That was Canada's top doctor, Dr. Theresa Tam, discussing the confluence of viruses spreading across this country. So what is the triple threat that doctors are warning Canadians about? Well, COVID-19 still hasn't gone away. Then there's the flu, which has already surpassed seasonal levels. And then the respiratory syncytial virus, also known as RSV. All three viruses have been making the rounds across Canada, putting pressure on the healthcare system. RSV can lead to lung infections with symptoms similar to the cold and flu. Those include runny nose, cough, and fever. Children under two years old are at higher risk for severe infection. So how should Canadians best defend themselves from the surge of respiratory viruses? Let's ask Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New. Welcome to the show, Dr. New. I wanted to ask you first, the public health agency is recommending Canadians to wear masks indoors and continue to get vaccinated to help fend off these viruses. Should governments be bringing back mask mandates? Well, that's really a question for government elected officials. I would say from a sort of public health perspective and what all the medical experts or at least most of them and public health experts, including myself and Dr. Tam, have said is that, hey, you know, all those good practices that we've used during COVID-19 are still going to serve us in good stead right now. And that includes, you know, you know, good hand hygiene, certainly continuing to wear a mask when you're in indoor spaces that are poorly ventilated and you're close contact with lots of other people. Uh, I think that really hasn't gone away from a scientific perspective. But uh, the question of whether a mask mandate should be put in, that's really left, I think, to uh, uh, local officials. Uh, they know best what's going on in their community based on the epidemiology. Uh, I, I've heard, uh, you know, from a uh, 
the Chief Medical Officer of Ontario and others that they might be considering, depending on how the uh, situation evolves. Of the three viruses, which poses the biggest risk, or is it the combination of all three, this maybe perfect storm that is really causing problems for healthcare providers? I would say it's a combination of all three, and I, and I think it's interesting to note that, you know, before COVID-19, uh, Canadians understood that, you know, winter season also means, you know, respiratory uh, infection season, you know, with uh, the flu and the colds and, you know, RSV, I think, was more known uh, for, for kids uh, before COVID-19. And what's happened, I, I think, in a, maybe in a good way, is that uh, people have learned all the good habits that would protect us from, uh, you know, not just COVID-19, but the flu and RSV and so on. And now I think uh, we have to double down. You know, you can see that uh, with us, I think the loosening of, of, let's say, public health measures with uh, individuals obviously wanting after two and a half years to get together, having more uh, social gatherings and going back to work and school that, uh, yes, I think we need to, to pay attention, recognizing that uh, we're seeing uh, an uptick in RSV and influenza uh, infections, as well as obviously COVID-19, which hasn't gone away. So yes, uh, keep up to date with your vaccinations, get your flu shot, as well as keeping up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, and use those those layers of protection. You know, what we say is that no one layer is protect, is, uh, is perfect, but uh, by using it consistently in terms of, you know, wearing a, a well-constructed mask, uh, obviously a well, well-fitting, you know, in indoor spaces, especially, and, uh, you know, uh, hand hygiene. Uh, and obviously the other part is if you're sick, I think that's another change in the culture. People used to say, I'll tough it out and go to work when I'm really feeling, you know, kind of crummy. But now people are thinking and saying, hey, you know, if you're sick, please stay at home and don't expose others to your infection. Yeah, I wanted to ask you specifically about RSV in children. It's kind of adding to the pressure in pediatric hospitals at a time when children's medications and antibiotics are really in short supply across this country. So what do you think parents should do to try and help their kids deal with RSV if they do get it? Well, that's a tough one. I think uh, certainly uh, any parent I can imagine, if you have a sick child with a fever and certainly uh, having difficulty uh, breathing, you know, or, or having a runny nose and so on, that uh, the first thing I would do, obviously, is, is seek, uh, you know, medical attention. Obviously, uh, getting an assessment from, uh, you know, a health professional, uh, for example, a family physician, I think is the first step. Uh, what I think I would underline as well is that uh, they're in the best position to give you the advice you need, be it in terms of fever control. And there are other options besides uh, taking, a, you know, a, a, you know, a, obviously a specific medication, although that's obviously important. But I think more importantly for, for the infections, I think uh, you were mentioning about antibiotics. And I think uh, it's important to also note that uh, antibiotics only work against bacterial infections. And when you're talking about RSV and, you know, influenza and, and even COVID-19, those are viruses and, and uh, antibiotics mm -hmm. don't work against viruses. So I think it's also uh, underscoring the point that you need to be using antibiotics prudently. So I think the first step really is a uh, seek medical attention. And, and uh, obviously that health professional will best guide uh, the parent in terms of what the, they could or should do for their child. Dr. New, I have less than 30 seconds, but I wanted to ask you, with this confluence of viruses that we're seeing, are you worried that this holiday season will be worse than the last couple of ones we've been through in this country? <laughs> I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would think that um, the one thing I think that Canadians should take to heart is that, that we don't need to be fatalistic. You know, the, the future is not predetermined. I think certainly uh, we recognize that with many of the, the viruses that, that the peak usually is, as you say, in late December, January, uh, maybe a somewhat linked to, to family uh, gatherings, et cetera, during the, the, the holiday season. And, and I think that if people are thoughtful about what they do uh, in terms of maybe uh, 
thinking about others, maybe if they're getting together with elderly or people who are immunocompromised, really think about, you know, being up to date with your vaccinations, flu shot, COVID-19, and as well, you know, using the layers of protection. You know, I keep repeating it, but I think it's so important. Face masks indoors. Uh, maybe as much as you can and increase the ventilation. And with that, you know, we in many ways can help control our, 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 our destiny. We're not uh, bound to, to uh, ultimately have a, a bad season. Uh, but if people don't take it seriously and, and sort of let go of what they can control, then, then unfortunately it may take a turn for the worst. You keep repeating it. We hope that people keep <laughs> heeding those warnings. Dr. Howard New, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Now let's take a turn back to this week's failed funding talks between the federal, provincial and territorial health ministers. As politicians point fingers at each other over who's to blame for the current stalemate, hospitals are struggling to deal with the surge of that trio of viruses. So what's at the heart of this fight? Well, a quick reminder here. Provinces want the feds to boost their share of the health care costs from 22 percent to 35 percent. That's an increase of the federal health transfer from about 42 billion dollars to $70 billion. The federal government says it's willing to come up with more cash, but it will have to come with conditions. One of them is a commitment from the premiers to help build a health care data system. So now the fight is ramped up and it's moved up to the office of the prime minister and each premier or territorial leader. What can be done to get through this funding deadlock? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, also the current chair of the Council of the Federation of Canada's Premiers. Welcome, Premier. Thank you so much for doing this. I just wanted to start with the talks that broke down between Jean-Yves Duclos and his provincial health, uh, provincial health minister's counterparts. Uh, he claims that those ministers were given marching orders to not make further progress during the negotiation. Did you tell your health minister to do that? No, not at all. I mean, there was no proposal that was put forward uh, by uh, Duclos uh, at, the, at the table there. Uh, we've made it very clear, though, as First Ministers, that, uh, as, that this, uh, these discussions should take place at a First Ministers meeting. Um, the Prime Minister has agreed to that kind of a meeting before, and we're just asking that we, that we get that meeting going. I think Canadians want to see us sitting down and working together on this, and we're we're calling on that uh, once again to happen, to happen. So there was no progress whatsoever made at that meeting in BC? No, there was no progress uh, made uh, whatsoever at that meeting. And uh, so, uh, you know, again, we're, we're calling on the federal government to come to the table, show us a proposal, show us what you're, you're looking at. And, uh, you know, we're happy to have those discussions. Those discussions should take place at a negotiating table, not through the media. So I want to ask you about that because through the media, hours before the meeting was expected to end, the group that you are chairing, the Council of the Federation, put out a press release saying that there was no progress achieved with the federal government to ensure sustainable health care funding. So is that what you would be calling negotiating in good faith? So really there was nothing that was put forward at all by Duclos at the, at the meeting. And so, of course, we're going to go out and take, uh, take issue with that. Uh, there really is nothing that's been put out there. And so, of course, um, really where this needs to take place, this is one of the most important issues across our country. Uh, and I know the Prime Minister knows that. And so he should be at the table, and so should the Premiers from across this country be at the table, having a discussion about what is the most important issue that Canadians are facing. 
So I know you said that Minister Duclos didn't put anything forward, but what are the health ministers from the provinces and territories putting forward as an option here on the table? Well, for example, we're moving forward uh, in our province. We made a $200 million uh, announcement today on more human resources within our health care system. Other provinces are doing the same. We cannot sit around and wait for the, for the federal government to come to the table. We need to take action, and we're taking action now. Having said that, we still need to sit down and have these discussions. It's absolutely paramount that we do. This is one of the most important issues that uh, Canadians are facing, and we need to be working together on it. Now, it would seem that the sticking point in all of these, these negotiations is the federal offer for cash with conditions. If there is broad agreement on something that the federal government has said that they want, which is that national health data system, then what is holding up the federal health transfers if it seems like a number of provinces are ready to do what the federal government would like to see? Well, again, we have no problem with accountability whatsoever at all. We have not yet seen a proposal uh, when it comes to the Canada health transfer from the federal government. We have seen nothing yet. Uh, and so, again, we. So, we, so then, Premier, we just. just I'm sorry to interrupt, but then, with all due respect, if you're saying that you haven't seen the idea, but we did hear from the health minister, the federal health minister, saying he wants this national health data system for the money. So is he not bringing that to the table then? Is he just saying that in the media? No, that is not a proposal at all that we have seen anywhere. So um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, again, I don't think that this is the appropriate place for us to be having discussions through the media when it comes to these things. If he has a proposal, if they have a proposal, you know, we should be sitting down as premiers across the country with the federal government and having that discussion at a first minister's meeting. And I'm sorry for the confusion, but it's just because Duclos, Minister Duclos has been talking about that and saying that one of the conditions of the money would be that national data system. Is, so you're saying that's something you would be on board with. We spoke with Saskatchewan yesterday saying they would be on board with it. BC says they're on board with it. So then what's the holdup here? Well, we have yet to see a proposal from them whatsoever on this. So... Again, I mean, the, the place to have that is at a first minister's meeting. So let's uh, sit down at that table and have those discussions. Again, this is one of the most important issues that, are that, are that Canadians are facing right now. And we need to sit down and have those discussions. I think they expect us to work together, different levels of government. And uh, we're certainly willing to do that. And I just want to be clear, because I know you said this, but just to be clear, if they say that it is cash with conditions... Manitoba would be fine with that, and I ask that because a number of premiers have said no, they don't want the federal government dictating where the money will be spent or how it should be spent. No, absolutely. The, the money has to go to the bottom line of the Canada Health tr Transfer. We need to increase those transfers up to the 35%. We continue to maintain that. Uh, but when it comes to in terms of accountability, uh, we are accountable every day to people within our provinces uh, in terms of how that that money would be spent. So then you'd, be, the you'd be okay with the government saying that they want it for a specific reason, it, for it to go to specific things? No, what I'm saying is that the federal government needs to uh, increase its level of funding to the 35%, and that needs to go into the bottom line. Every province, every territory is different in terms of where that money is needed. What I'm saying is that I will be accountable to the people of Manitoba as to where those expenditures are being made. And every province will be accountable to, to the people of their provinces and territories. So are you saying you just don't want to be accountable to the federal government that would be giving you that money? 
We are accountable to Canadians when it comes to the delivery of health care. It's a provincial and territorial uh, jurisdiction. That's where it should remain. What we're asking is that the federal government does its fair share uh, towards that. I think Canadians need, want, and deserve that. And I just want to be clear. So you say you want the money, but no strings attached. Yes, what we're saying is that we need to have the federal government at the table as a real partner moving forward when it comes uh, to the Canada Health Transfer. You'll recall that it started off as a 50-50 partnership back in the, the 50s, 60s, and that has dwindled down to 22% on behalf of the federal government. That is not a sustainable and, and fair approach to the future of health care in our country, and that's why we are calling on the federal government to increase that share of the Canada Health Transfer. Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Thanks, Mike. Coming up, Toronto's call for financial help. The mayor of Canada's largest city says if he doesn't get more provincial and federal pandemic support, he may have to raise taxes to deal with a budget crunch. Should John Tory be asking for help or should he be looking for savings instead? We'll ask the mayor of Toronto next on Power Play. Deputy Prime Minister, and I quote, said that the emergency spending during COVID-19 was necessary and it worked. And I agree with that. But major cities, led by Toronto because of the size and complexity of the city and the size and complexity, for example, of our transit system, continue to have a financial hangover from COVID, strictly from COVID. The money we're looking for here is not related to other programs we're trying to get them to help fund. It's not related to ongoing operating funding of transit as much as that could be an issue I would be delighted to discuss. It's COVID hangover completely. Canada's biggest city is staring down an $815 million deficit in its operating budget. Toronto Mayor John Tory is calling for help from the provincial and federal governments. In a letter sent to Federal Finance Minister Christopher Freeland and Ontario Premier Doug Ford, Tory said Toronto still needs support to recover from the impacts of COVID-19. He asked for an immediate funding commitment by the end of this month. So why the urgency? Well, his letter reads in part that Toronto needs help, quote, so that we do not have to make deep cuts to services or, or residents, uh, residents require most impose massive tax increases they cannot afford or implement reductions to our capital budget, which could eliminate thousands of jobs and threaten our, econo our economic recovery, end quote. Tory blames COVID-19 for the city's lost revenue and financial strain. He says the city is seeing lower public transit ridership more shelters to promote physical distancing and fewer people working in person. Now, it has been two years since COVID-19 first disrupted the world. So does Toronto just need to adapt or do both the federal and provincial governments really need to step in? Let's find out. Joining me now in a TV exclusive is Toronto Mayor John Tory. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Thank you very much for making the time. I wanted to start by asking you... Toronto did receive $2.6 billion in aid in 2020 and 2021. And so far this year, your city got $525 million. How much more money are you looking for from the province and the federal governments? Well, I'm looking for them to help us with what remains to be an $800 million plus uh, deficit that is strictly COVID related. And, and again, I want to make that clear you did earlier on. 
but the fact is that you know we, we have a transit system that is out of proportion with any other one in the country. And I know people don't like to hear about Toronto's problems or Toronto's scale and size, but I mean we we move on our transit system 1.7 million people every single day, every day, and that dropped down dramatically. And with that came all the fare revenue that uh, that went with it, and and that's strictly because of COVID. And it's now recovered. Uh, to about 70% of the normal ridership of 1.7 million passengers a day. and But we're still short a lot of money with that 30%. And all I'm saying is that I think that Toronto should be treated on the same scale as any other transit system, for example, that moves 1.7 million people per day. And that means there are none. We are the only one of that size and scale. And I'm proud of that for environmental and other reasons that so many people use public transit. But the fact is it puts us as a city and other major cities are in the same position in terms of their lack of ability to raise that kind of money when you have to operate the transit system for the people who are using it. But you've fallen short entirely because of COVID and you need some help from governments who have other sources of revenue than we do with strictly property taxes uh, and uh, a small amount coming from relatively small from land transfer tax. Your point is taken on ridership, but things like remote and hybrid work are considered the future of work by employers. So does your city not just need to adapt to this new world? Well, the answer probably is yes, if there's going to be large numbers of people going forward that are working from home and are never again going to ride the transit system. I don't think that's an open and shut case at this moment. I think that uh, that's all still in transition. But the point is, uh, for I'm not asking for this in perpetuity. I'm saying that the governments and I acknowledge and I want to acknowledge with gratitude the fact they helped us and other cities across the country in 2020 and in 2021 and have provided some help in 2022. But what I'm relying on now is also the fact that when I was preparing the budget for 2022, knowing I had to keep the transit system going, I had to keep thousands of people sheltered overnight in a way that was physically distanced because of COVID, that those two governments, the government of Ontario and the government of Canada, made a commitment in writing to help uh, Toronto and other cities who faced these kinds of COVID hangovers, if I could call it that. And I should say, by the way, we have in each of those years, 2020, 2021, and again this year, 22, found a half a billion dollars in savings and efficiencies within our own government. So we were not just asking other people to help. We've also helped ourselves. But I'm just saying to you so that, you sent- yes, we'll make adjustments like everybody else going forward to remote work and so on. But we have to keep that transit system running. Uh, and it does still serve a huge number of people, 70% of 1.7 million, whatever that is. Uh, and uh, going forward, we hope to get it back to 100%. But in the meantime, we're going through a transition. So you sent this letter with a few threats in it uh, yesterday. And it no, there were no threats. There were just both. Uh, statements of fact. Well, you, no I mean, threats. you said that you'd be raising taxes if you didn't have to. So that's not a threat? No, I mean, look, I've already indicated in the course of the election I just fought that I would have to raise taxes, but I promised to keep the rate of increase below the rate of inflation. But having said that, I think the thing we've looked most to have to do in the event that they they don't help us is to cut capital. And that is no better. I mean, cutting capital where we're cutting, you know, the building out of uh, transit facilities, the building of roads, uh, the, the installation of new water mains and sewer pipes. This is part of the lifeblood of a city. And we just don't have the resources when we have to balance the budget. So we can cut that capital and, uh, you know, we, 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 we would ordinarily raise taxes, but I've refused to do that in terms of a kind of 15 or 20% increase because people are struggling in this city and others around the country under the burdens of inflation. Uh, so there are only yeah, three so ways I, that you can so, fix the problem given that we have to balance the budget. Yeah, Mr. Mayor, I just wanted to ask you, though, you sent the letter yesterday. You want a commitment by both levels of government by the end of the month. So have you heard anything from Minister Freeland or Premier Ford? No, I've had many discussions with them both. And to be truthful, I mean, they sort of go back and forth a little bit about if they're going to help Toronto, which they had both committed to do in writing, um, if they're going to help Toronto, who should help more? 
And I'm just saying that I'm happy to go to a room with them and help all of us sort out um, who should fairly pay which portion. And I'm prepared to make sure we do some more to help ourselves, as I've indicated, but that we need to have an answer. The end of the fiscal year is at hand at, on December 31st. And, you know, had I not been encouraged by the fact that they said they would help, uh, then I, I might have had to find other ways to deal with it. So I've indicated what those ways are, and none of them are in the best interest of a strong recovery in Toronto. And I, go, I know people around the country, again, don't like to hear this, but the Toronto economy, you know, comprises more than 20 percent of the entire nation's GDP. And it's, it's important for us to be making the capital investments and serving the city well so that our economy can recover and grow and get through these uncertain times. And I'm asking here for help with the COVID-related only, um, you know, shortfalls in revenue and additional expenditures we've had to shelter people and to keep the transit system running. And I think that's a fair request. And yes, our request is beyond what others might have asked for because the scope and scale of what we're dealing with in terms of service provision and the size of the transit system and so on are well beyond the scope and scale of other uh, cities in the country. Toronto Mayor John Tory, thank you so much for joining us here on PowerPlay today. We appreciate that. Thank you very much. Here is some other news you need to know. We have new data on just how hard Canadians are being hit by rising food prices. New survey done by Nanos Research shows 61% of respondents are buying cheaper food. 25% of respondents are stockpiling food and 17% have chosen to eat less. Only 29% of Canadians have been able to maintain their regular food habits. And Canada's central bank governor says our record low employment rate can't be sustained and it's spurring inflation. We need to rebalance the labor market. This will be a difficult adjustment. We want to do this in the best way possible for Canadian workers and businesses. Higher interest rates will help cool spending and the demand for labor in the economy. This will give supply time to catch up relieving price pressures. Canada's unemployment rate sits at just 5.2%, but Macklem says that the bank's interest rate hikes will cool the labour market by limiting the purchasing power in the country. And Liberal MP Yvonne Jones is taking a leave of absence, releasing a statement today saying in part, quote, in September I was diagnosed with a reoccurrence of breast cancer. I'm happy to tell you it was found and diagnosed early through regular mammography testing. It was 12 years ago since my first bout with breast cancer. And after surgery, chemo and radiation and astringent follow-up, I had not only beat cancer, but have enjoyed a very full, active and healthy life. At this time, I will be taking a leave of absence to undergo surgery and medical treatment as required. I am confident that I will end this journey in good health and return to work as soon as possible. All of us here at CTV News wish her well and a speedy recovery. And a programming note, you can watch Remembrance Day 2022 with Omar Sachedina tomorrow. I will be part of that broadcast as well. It starts at 10 a.m. Eastern on CTV, CTV News Channel, and ctvnews.ca. We will also have a His special edition of Power Play tomorrow evening featuring Canada's National Silver Cross mother, Ms. Candy Greff. We spoke with her earlier today at the National War Memorial here in Ottawa, not only to her, but about her son, Master Corporal Byron Greff, who was the last Canadian soldier to lose his life in Afghanistan. Well, still to come two days later, and they're still counting votes south of the border. We'll head down to D.C. to see if either party is any closer to securing a majority in the House of Representatives. 
or the Senate? An update from our Washington bureau chief, Joy Malbin, is right after this on Power Play. Thank you, thank you. Away. All the Democrats ran. While votes are being counted, we don't know the outcome of all the races. Here's what we do know. We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first elected midterm. At least 40 years. Well, two days after America voted in the midterm elections, ballots are still being counted in critical races. Right now, 209 Republicans and 189 Democrats have been elected to the House of Representatives. And in the Senate, the Republicans have 48 seats and the Democrats have 46. The control of the Senate will be determined by just four races. America is still waiting on the results from Nevada and Arizona, and Georgia's Senate race has moved to a runoff after Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker failed to get the required 50% of the vote. So what does that runoff mean for the big announcement that Donald Trump was teasing, and what do the results mean for the Biden administration? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV National News Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malbin. Joy, thanks for being with us again. Still too close to call when it comes to who has control of the Senate and the House of Representatives. What do we know today? We are in overtime. There are 34 <laughs> House races still yet to be called. Hundreds of thousands of votes still yet to be counted. Mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. Uh, but already, Joe Biden was celebrating what felt like a win, but he actually acknowledges that the Democrats will likely lose their majority in the House. And so he was talking today about how Democrats and Republicans must work together, that the voters want them to work together. And he was saying, look, here's what I will do. I will we'll have a meeting. We'll talk. We'll see where, where we can move ahead on things like climate change. But he said, if, if the Republicans want a ban on abortion, I'll veto that. If they want to cut Medicare, if they want to cut, uh, you know, um, social security checks, I will veto that. So he's already laying out what he will do, even though the Republicans still don't have a majority. Thank it's kind of weird. <laughs> Weird indeed. And I've only got about 20 seconds, though, Joy. So what about Trump's big announcement that he's been teasing? Look, the blame game is going on. Uh, a lot of top Republicans are actually going public saying, put a pause on it. Let's just wait, because a lot of his candidates, these election deniers, haven't done so well. They were flawed candidates. And of course, Georgia is the big state that could decide the Senate. Herschel Walker is a hand-picked election denier uh, because of Donald Trump. But you know, apparently his uh, big announcement next week is still on. And we'll be watching CTV's Joy Malvin. Thank you again for making the time today. Coming up, climate change is on the world's agenda. COP27 is underway with criticisms over the presence of fossil fuel lobbyists. But should the fossil fuel industry be part of the solution? Or is there a seat at the table getting in the way of critical action? Talk to Canada's Environment Minister next. Stay with PowerPlay. A global push to fight climate change is underway in Egypt. COP27 brings the world together in search of a united path forward to lower global temperatures before it's too late. 
Environmental activists are worried that real ambition is being muted because they say there are 100 more fossil fuel lobbyists at this year's COP compared to last year's. Some of those lobbyists are part of the Canadian delegation. So should the oil and gas industry even get a seat at the environmental table? And what is Canada willing to do to drive climate action agendas forward? Let's find out. And joining me now from COP27 in Egypt is Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault. Welcome, Minister. Thank you very much for making the time today. I'm going to jump right into this. Your government has proudly said this is the largest delegation that Canada has sent to a COP. However, included in that delegation are representatives from the oil sands industry. What do you say to critics who believe having them there will prevent true ambition when it comes to tackling climate change? Canada is a, is a dem- democratic society, and, and in a democratic society, all voices um, can be heard and, and, and should be heard. Uh, and we need to work with the, with the oil and gas sector to reduce our emissions and tackle climate change, just like we need to work with the auto sector, the cement sector, aluminum, steel. We, we won't solve this problem by ignoring some of our largest in- industrial sectors. So I'm I think it's 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 fine for them to be here, and I think it's fine for organizations, some some organizations, organization to say that they, they disagree with their presidents, they don't think they should be here. That's what that's the beauty of of, of being in a in a democracy. But what do you say to people who think that we lack ambition because they're sitting at the table? That they would actually be holding back some of that ambition. There's a difference between them being here and, and what we need to do and what we're doing as government. And as a government, we fought all the way to the Supreme Court to be able to put in place carbon pricing in Canada. We're, we're imposing on these companies a number of regulations so that they will reduce their pollution, um, regulations to reduce methane emission, a very powerful greenhouse gas. We will cut methane emission in the oil and gas sector almost by 50% by 2025. Uh, we're, we're, we're forcing gas and, and diesel distributors, uh, gasoline and diesel distributors in Canada to reduce the carbon footprint of, of the fuel that, that, that they sell by investing in cleaner alternatives, by, by investing in, in electrification of transportation. So, I mean, they, they, have, they, can, they can voice their, their concern, they, they, they can voice their point of view, but it won't stop us from, from, from doing what we need to do in Canada to fight climate change. And, and I ask this especially because Global Witness, which is a climate action group, says that there's over 100 more fossil fuel lobbyists at COP27 than there were at last year's talk. So I guess the question is, should there be a cap on lobbyists and how many can be in this conversation? I think, I think it's a false debate, Mike. Um, I, I was in a meeting with, with the head of the International Energy Agency uh, two days ago, and he said, you know, despite what we're hearing about coal making a comeback and fossil fuels because the illegal uh, Putin's illegal invasion of, of Russia. Well, actually, the facts are that this year globally, there'll be 20% more investment in clean technologies than in fossil fuels. And in Canada, there's two times more investment in clean technologies and renewable ener- energy than, 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 than in fossil fuels. I think that's what we need to be looking at. For, for me, whether or not, you know, there, there's, there's two lobbyists from the oil industry, there's 100 lobbyists from the oil industry, is, is meaningless. What, what's important is what we're actually doing to fight climate change. And I want to ask you about what you're doing there. Today is Youth Day at COP. However, activist Greta Thunberg says that these summits have been used by world leaders as a greenwashing exercise. How do you respond to that? 
I have lots of respect for, 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 for Ms. Thunberg. I disagree with her on, on that. Um, 10 years ago, the world was heading into temperature increase in the order of four to six degrees Celsius, which, which would make many parts of, of the world simply unlivable for, for, for humans. And through our collective actions over the last decade, we've managed to, to, bring, to bring those projections for, for, for temperature increase from four to six degrees Celsius to 1.7 to 2.4. Now, what we agreed upon is to try and be as close as possible to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we're not there, and, and we're already seeing the impacts of climate change of, of a 1.1 degree Celsius warming world. That's where we are now. And we're seeing Fiona, we're seeing forest fires in BC. So the more there's warming, the more there'll be climate impacts. But, but through our collective work over the years, we've managed to, to, to reduce billions of tons of, of pollution that would contribute to global warming. Now, we're not quite there yet. We need to continue acting and we need to accelerate this because we know that climate impacts are accelerating. But through, through our work, we are getting there. Speaking of not quite there yet, at the last COP in Scotland, there was a failure to get richer countries to pay into that fund that would help poorer countries deal with the effects of climate change. What has Canada been doing at this COP to finally get that over the finish line? So I wouldn't call it a, a failure because... In, well, in other people called it a failure, Minister, with all due respect. Yes, other yes. people did. Yeah, and I'm saying I wouldn't. Uh, because we we made a commitment that by 2020 we would provide 100 billion dollars, countries like Canada, Europe, Japan, the U.S. to the de developing world to help them to help them tackle climate change. In 2020, we were at 83 billion dollars. So so some would call it a failure, and and I respect that. But but 83 billion dollars is not 100, but it's not nothing either. And 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 we know that we will get there next year in terms of that commitment, and and that on average between 2020 and 2025, we will meet the hundred billion dollar goals per year. So we're we're getting there. Again, we're we're not quite there, and and, and Canada. That's why we doubled our our international climate assistance last last year in Glasgow, and we're working with. We, we presented a report yesterday with, with Germany and the United Kingdom that shows how we get there and what are the things we need to do to, to, to get there. Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up, masking indecision. As we see a rise in respiratory viruses put pressure on Canadian hospitals, will governments bring back masking mandates or will governments leave it up to individual Canadians to figure it out? pediatric infectious, infectious disease specialist Dr. Jesse Pappenberg joins the press gallery next on Power Plan. To mask or not to mask, that is the question. Now, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, recommends Canadians wear masks to protect themselves from the rising tide of respiratory viruses wreaking havoc on our healthcare system right now. But she said it would be up to provincial authorities to bring back mask mandates. But with over two years of pandemic under our belt, do provinces really still have the political capital, or will they reinstate those public health restrictions like mask mandates. Let's bring in the press gallery to weigh in. Stephanie Levitt, she's a parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star. Emmeline Nicolas, she's a columnist for Le Devoir. And our special guest today is Dr. Jesse Pappenberg, a pediatric infectious disease specialist 
based in Montreal. Thank you all for being here. Dr. Pappenberger, we're going to start with you. Should governments be bringing back mask mandates? I mean, Dr. News said that they're part of layered measures, but they're really the easiest measure to bring back, aren't they? They are. And what we saw during the pandemic is that masks and social distancing and frequent hand washing really do work at limiting the spread of respiratory viruses in the community. And that's particularly the case with young children and we and in school-aged children, younger children. And right now, the pediatric healthcare system in certain parts of Canada is really being stretched to its limits because of a tsunami of different respiratory viruses, not COVID-19, but all the other respiratory viruses causing severe illness in children. Steph, I wanted to ask you, do governments have enough political capital right now to reinstate mask mandates? Or do we still sort of have those convoy protests hanging over us? Because that's what some people in those protests we're really pushing back against. I'm not sure the political capital is there. If there's going to be political capital spent, there has to be political pressure applied. And mm-hmm. so you're going to need to see voices beyond, you know, the medical community, but, you know, influential other organizations saying, hey, we need to do this. We need to do it. But something that's, I think, is, is worrisome to a lot of people, right? Is it, is it going to be the kids that get hit with this again? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the kids that are the ones who are forced mask mandate, who are forced into online schooling, who are forced to do things to control the spread of viruses in the pediatric population because, hey, kids don't vote or whatever it is, you know, and that the adult population will be told, hey, do whatever. We're going to see a mask mandate come back into the schools. And I think that's going to be poli- pretty politically polarizing, Um, certainly in Ontario, for sure, where the politics of education right now are, you know, really on the front burner about what's happening in the school system here. And as long as parents don't have to stay home to take care of the kids and they're not working, then maybe it's not that big of a problem for governments, right? Correct. Yeah. So, Emily, I wanted to ask you, there's an exclusive uh, Nanos poll that shows the majority of Canadians actually support the return of indoor masking. Support for masking is over 70% in B.C., in Ontario. What do you think of the hesitation for governments to bring back mask mandates? What do you think is behind that? Uh, I think it's, uh, first of all, different to ask people, you know, do you agree that we should all mask and um, to and, and to ask people, um, you know, what consequences do you want to have if you're not masked? Uh, and I think that's that's the trick here. Uh, I think the other political question that's behind it uh, is, uh, First of all, is governments, you know, doing everything that you can? Essentially, uh, is it better to mask? Or is the is the public health care system under pressure uh, because of the viruses or because it's been essentially collapsing so much so that um, now uh, respiratory illnesses are are putting uh, are, are putting incredible incredible pressure on the system because it's already so weak? And then the third question. I think um, is is the question of actually flu vaccination and how much of it is actually you know communicated as best as possible here where I'm sitting uh, in Quebec uh, flu vaccination is not universal so I cannot myself access uh, the flu shot for free even if I wanted to uh, where I'm sitting so there's also a lot of other uh, things that governments could do to help with the current uh, crisis that that are not even in place. So I think if governments were to do it, go ahead, provincial governments were to do ahead, go ahead, sorry, and, uh, and, and, and bring back conversation around masks, they will have to answer questions of all of those fronts. 
Dr. Pappenberg, I wanted to sort of pick up on the viruses that are out there. We're seeing a concerning rise of RSV among children. Is this the leading reason why we're seeing more children being admitted to hospitals and ICUs right now? I mean, we're seeing also a shortage of children's medication. So what are concerned parents supposed to do at this point? Well, you're, to answer your first question, you're right that RSV is right now the number one cause of hospitalizations due to respiratory infections, at least in Quebec. And uh, this is something that we're used to in pediatrics. It is the leading cause of hospitalization in young children year in and year out uh, under the age of one year uh, um, is RSV. So that's not surprising to us. But unfortunately, right now, we're also getting hit with other respiratory viruses at the same time. And RSV started much earlier than usual. This is a winter virus, but we had very high levels of activity already at, at the beginning of October. So it's really this constellation of respiratory infections that's overwhelming our capacity, and these children are sick, and our ICU capacity is really stretched to limit as well. So I think that it's just the overwhelming number of infections and what we're seeing in terms of hospitalization, it's the tip of the iceberg. And Stephanie, sort of the backdrop of all of this right now is this fight over healthcare funding. And it's almost like this political game of chicken that the provinces, territories, and the government are, are playing right now. So, I mean, how is this going to play out now, considering that parents are, you know, either at home with a kid that has uh, RSV or trying to deal with all of this? One of the things that I think is so immensely frustrating right now in this system, especially as it deals with pediatric illnesses and the rise of when the um, isolation measures went into effect, when the masking measures went into effect, there was discussion about there was going to be a knock-on effect here on people's mm -hmm. health if you went into isolation for two years. They were not going to be exposed to a number of viruses. It was expected that this was going to happen. And so why wasn't the healthcare system prepared for it? Why wasn't the federal government prepared for it? It always seems we're reacting, like the, the system is reactive to things yeah. as opposed to proactive. And I'm not, this isn't about the doctors who work in the healthcare system. This is about the funding model, hospital management. The fact that the healthcare talk so spectacularly collapsed is so distressing that you have to wonder what is the thing that is going to get us out of it? I mean, is it so unreasonable for the federal government to ask for checks and balances? Conversely, you know, are the provinces sitting on billions of dollars that wasn't spent and then they cry foul to the federal government asking for more money? Yeah. This isn't, these are, you know, old arguments we've been having, but with a system that really is stopped functioning for Canadians and for their political game of chicken, that doesn't cut it for anybody. Yeah, and Emily, I've only got 20 seconds, but you're in a province where they just announced they're going to be handing out um, money to people to deal with inflation. So how is that going to play there when you consider there's this game of chicken over funding for health care? I don't think sending checks to people, uh, you rarely, it rarely backfire, <laughs> let's put it this way. However, uh, there yeah. is, you're right to say that there is a connection with, uh, you know, the, the demands for healthcare uh, transfers that, that the province has been doing here, and it's been definitely in the news. Emily, I'm uh, sorry I got to cut week. you off. I'm running out of time. Second straight okay, day. No I apologize. Problem. Stephanie Levitz, Emily Nicola, Dr. Jesse Pappenberg. That's your Power Play Day in politics. We'll see you back here tomorrow.